No. Um, what, what I mean, like everyone's in a movie now because, you know, when, when there's a movie, what happens when someone coughs? Oh yeah, it's like it's like there's a dramatic news, dramatic pause. Everyone stares at the guy, and it's like. Yeah. Well, even if it's not a pandemic movie or anything, like if you're in a movie, uh, um, you know the moment that somebody makes googly eyes at someone else, they end up sleeping together in three frames over. And oh. in a movie, the moment somebody's like, <coughs> you know, like they never cough without three scenes later coughing up blood into a handkerchief, right? Yeah, uh, all oh, yeah. coughs lead to death in in movies, and uh, it's the same thing with like now everybody's ow pandemic, <laughs> don't cough, cough means death. Yeah, you have to basically ward off death by uh, joking about it, right? Right, right, right. No, it's like uh, in in every World War One movie, the younger brother who's eager to go to war, you know what happens yep. to him? Oh yeah, he 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 mounts the he mounts the trench and goes. Poof. Yeah, like the cynical older brother who's wary, and uh, you know Mel Gibson in, in Gallipoli. Uh, the uh, the older brother who's wary and skeptical, he's the one who survives. But the younger, idealistic, for God, king and country, right? I mean, it's 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 a it's a terrible. My daughter and I are actually going to do a show on movie cliches, and because we've we've kind of noticed a few over the years. And when we watched oh the remake of Mulan, it was like it was just everywhere. Women can do everything. Men are idiots, yeah. right? Uh, and um, yeah, so these kinds of cliches are just kind of all over the place. And once you see them, they kind of lose their power. But of course, a lot of people don't really see them, right? Right. So on, on that, I know you're going to do a show on it probably, or at least it's going to come up in the cliches talk. talk. But uh, Mulan itself, I have no intention of plans of watching it. Uh, is it as sort of bad as it sort of would you expect? Or was it uh, actually pretty decent in some ways? Well, it's, I mean, it's a visual feast for sure. Mm. And, you know, I mean, the acting is all uh, pretty solid. Um, and uh, another cliche that we kind of noticed was like every, quote, evil female has a justifying backstory. Like, I'm bad, but here's why. <laughs> and they usually ah. reform before the end of the movie and turn good. So if an evil female character is introduced, like this is all the way from Maleficent to like, if an evil female character is introduced... They're always given a justifying backstory, and usually they will reform before the end of the movie, right? That's, that's mm-hmm. how it works. Um, but, but male characters are just causelessly evil <laughs> and never reform. They're just, like, they're just born evil. Or they're, like, and so there's no backstory. Like, why is there a bad guy in – why is the bad guy bad in uh, Mulan? Eh, no reason. <laughs> Mm-hmm. He's got acne. I don't know. Like, there's no reason. Uh, but why? Why? Why is the why is the witch bad? Well, there's a reason. She was, you know, she's always got to be given a backstory that justifies it, and then through that she gets to reform herself. But uh, the bad guys, it's just this physics. You know, just physics of male evil. Yeah. There's no, there's, there's no, there's no predictability to it. Anyway, all right. But so they're um, not really evil. I'm sorry, mm. but then they're not really evil. Mm. Yeah, yeah, no. Then, then they're just like I don't know, birds of prey or something. <laughs> you know, they're just like wolves. They're not they're broken robots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just causelessly evil because. Oh man. And 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 always smelly. You know, that always looks. And and of course, the female evil is never grimy, but uh, male yeah. evil always looked like they've rolled in grit and have like oil worked into their pores and stuff like that, and bad teeth and bad breath. But female evil uh. always always still has. Age, age-defying makeup. It's just, <laughs> hey man, don't blame me. I didn't make the rules. It's just the physics of the uh, moral universe. And you know, movies are so boring now too because you know, you know, everything that is going to occur before it occurs. 
Mm. Like, you know, you know, you know that, that, you know, like, I don't know, like they have some minority character or whatever or something. It, it always has to be following a particular narrative. It always has to be following a particular, like, modern sort of positive cliche. And the writing is always so defensive based upon, I don't know, you don't want to annoy some pressure group or some upset bunch of leftists or whatever. So you've got to conform to all of that. And that's why I'm sort of enjoying, I don't really watch movies that much anymore. But when I do, I sort of dip into older ones where at least there was a bit more authenticity to the human condition rather than, uh, well, we don't want to make this group mad and we don't want to make that group mad. So we'll write this, that and the other. And it's all just, uh, I don't know, it's just, um, it's so grindingly predictable. Yeah, I, I'm wondering if you're going to do any comparison between like previously previous cliches and like the the new crop of cliches, like because some of the stuff you've mentioned is more recent, especially you know like stupid men or just sort of even cautiously evil. I think, uh, although that's not necessarily perfectly modern, if that makes sense. Well, I blame a lot of it on The Godfather, which was a uh, mm-hmm. a pretty seminal turning point in movie evil. Where, you know, evil now is cool, uh, evil is uh, honorable, uh, evil is noble, uh, evil is wealthy, evil avoids consequences. You know, like in, in the past, it was always like, well, the bad guys get punished, the good guys win. And the transition movie was The Untouchables with Kevin Costner and Sean, I guess now the late Sean Connery, where, mm-hmm. you know, the, the Elliot Ness is fighting all of this prohibition stuff. Because, you know, drinking is just evil and, and blah, blah, blah. And, and he gets into all of this death and murder and all that. And then at the end of the movie, uh, when prohibition is repealed, uh, people say, well, what are you going to do now? He says, oh, I guess I'll have a drink. There's no moral, right? He's <laughs> like, now it's legal. I can do it. It was all just slave of the state stuff. And that was sort of, uh, uh, there was no moral principles. It was just, I, I'm a slave to the laws and I will kill people when the government tells me to. And then when the government tells me to stop killing people, I guess I'll just have a drink. Like, it's morally empty. Uh, that was I know I know the the um, Untouchables came after uh, the Godfather, but in the Godfather, I mean, it was really radical revisiting, and it's it's a real shame that such cinematic and acting talent was attached to that movie because it really did turn evil into something kind of cool. Uh, Scarface kind of did that too. I remember being in Mexico and seeing mm. these endless posters of Scarface, and uh, you know, like the Al Pacino character. Uh, because, you know, he's considered a hero. And in fact, uh, Marlon Brando's portrayal of Don Corleone was so respected by the Italian community that Marlon Brando never had to pay for a meal in an Italian restaurant for the rest of his life. Because they're like, hey, you made us Italians look good. It's like, really? Is that, is that where we, we are? That, you know, the way you look good is you have a charismatic mafia don? Or I don't know. It's just kind of funny that way. But uh, anyway, North and South Italians are kind of different that way. And I imagine this came more from the South. But uh, all right, yeah. I guess we'll uh, we'll do art analysis perhaps another day. But uh, let's move on. It is Saturday, election plus five. <laughs> is it election plus five? Man, oh man! And um, I guess everyone's. I mean, it's funny because it's not a narrative that it's been called for Biden. Like the newspapers have some capacity to <laughs> call the election, and uh, I guess there's a whole number of lawsuits pending and all that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty brutal what's happened to uh, American democracy. But given that I'm off politics, uh, it's, uh, it's fine. <laughs> you know, I, I get the uh, vaguely nihilistic statement of it is what it is, which is, you know, kind of true. And, you know, stuff that, goes be- stuff that goes to the courts is almost beyond the realm of philosophy at this point because it just comes down to legal interpretation and then enforcement. You know, whether that occurs or not, we'll see. But, yeah, it's basically 
legal analysis, court-appointed guns to enforce one way or the other, and um, that's not where... Philosophy doesn't reach down that, uh, that dark into the tunnel of coercion. So uh, anyway, let's move on with the mission of the show, to improve the lives of people directly and personally through the power of philosophy. James, let's get it going. All right. So t- this morning we have a, uh, a listener who writes in. My wife and I are dedicated to raising our children according to the principles of peaceful parenting, which was not very difficult when our little lad was the only child, but now as our baby girl has joined the family, he has now become increasingly jealous and abusive towards her. At 19 months, he is only semi-verbal, identifying objects and simple properties such as hot, cold, and ouchy, but not emotions. Our six-month-old sissy is often hit on the head, had her toys and bottle taken from her, even when we have provided it an equivalent or better for him. We have taught him to give her a kiss on the forehead when she cries to help encourage empathy, but lately he has even bitten her on the forehead, nose, and face while doing so. We are at our wit's end trying to figure out what he needs so that he does not feel this jealousy. We have followed the advice of various sources such as Peaceful Parent, Happy Kid, and tried working with the advice of others in the community, but there seems to be something fundamental that we have not identified at the root of it. We would like to get your assistance to see what principles we should follow. And my understanding is that he and his wife are available for the call. And I think the little one's around, but uh, we'll see. Well, good morning or good afternoon, good evening, good day. How are you guys doing? Hey, Steph. How's it going? It's, ah, it's going uh, well. All right. Good to hear. So, yeah, my wife will be um, here, but semi here because uh, because of the kids. Our, our little girl's being put to bed. We're trying to see if she's going to bed right now. And my little lad right here is uh, playing with a chair. So we're here. And so she might be a little transient. No worries at all. So can you tell me a little bit more about the uh, the birth of your son? What was going on in your guys' lives? That kind of stuff. <clears throat> sure, absolutely. So my little boy, he is 19 months old. When he was born... Um, he was born, oh, let's see here. He was born, he had swallowed the meconium, and he was a breech baby. So that being the case, he was in the NICU five days. And I remember being by his bedside and just, because everything looked really scary, because it looked like he wasn't going wasn't gonna to make it at the very beginning. And I told him, I love you with all I have and all I am. And would do everything I can to make sure that he's a happy, healthy little boy. So fortunately, after a couple of days, he was able to get discharged from the NICU, and we were able to get out of the hospital. I'm sorry, just just for With those that. who don't sorry uh-huh. for those who don't know the acronym, of course. But you've gone through this kind of stuff; it gets imprinted in your brain. That's natal oh, intensive mm-hmm. care, is that right? That's correct. Yes. Okay. So, so I'm that, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Mm-hmm. So, what was the yeah. story uh, when he was in natal intensive care? Um, <laughs> what was the setup? Was he isolated? Was he uh, separated? Were you able to hold him? Did he get skin contact? That kind of stuff. Oh yeah, I tried doing as much as I can of that with him. So, so what happened is, so he would go into the natal intensive care unit, and with that, he was on oxygen the entire time. But any opportunity that I had to hold his hand and to you know cuddle up next to him and do everything I can to interact with him, because my wife, she was recovering from the C-section, and so I just spent—I mean, I barely slept. Just I would wake up and go be with him as much as I could and then see how my wife was doing and just kind of alternate as much as I could. I lived off those uh, 
those Uncrustables, the Smucker's Uncrustables <laughs> that they have on the little fridge or in the little fridge for fathers there. Oh, man. That's pretty much it. Right, right. But yeah. So, so with sorry, that, you said, so you said you were oh, able, yeah. sorry to interrupt. You said you were able to hold his hand. Uh, what other physical contact were you yeah. able to have with him? Hold his hand. I was able to, for periods of time, maybe an hour each day was to be able to cuddle, hold him and, you know, cuddle with him and do what I can. Just there was a lot of oxygen tubes coming out off of him or oxygen tubes and, you know, a few other diagnostic tubing. And so with that, um, it had to be kind of arranged for me to hold him. So I, I did that as much as I could. And how much was that? Oh, like I said, maybe hour, two hours a day. And how was he being so, fed? Um, so he was being fed, but he was tube fed for those, those few days. So tube fed, meaning, uh, it went into his arm or down his throat or what? Uh, it went, yeah, in, in his nose, the nose, the nasal way, and it goes down into his stomach. And then after a couple of days, after he was discharged, we were able to breastfeed for a little while, but that did have to be supplemented with, oh yeah, that's right. You did breastfeed in the hospital. So she did breastfeed in the hospital. It was here if you want to tell him that. Okay. Hello. Hi, nice to meet um, you. Thanks for so taking the time to call. I was Go ahead. To, yeah, nice to meet you. Yeah. Um, I was in the hospital, and um, after a while, they had him on the <laughs> nasal tube for breast milk. Oh, okay. And so then I was were, able to so breastfeed when, him, but it was the, very hard. Yeah, right. So sorry, <laughs> you were you were pumping your milk and then they were feeding him through the nose. Is that right? Yes. And did you get a chance to do being down like, on the bit... <laughs> and uh, and then then I had to walk up there after my C-section after I felt like I could, you know, walk and uh, do that. I'd go up to the, the next floor and uh, I would um, breastfeed him. And it was it was a very very hard time. Oh, uh, I'm so it sorry. Was yeah, my first I mean, first it's, C-section. It's something yeah. you look forward to, of course, for months and months or years, perhaps. You know, holding your baby and all of that. And I mean, that oh, kind of yeah. yeah, that kind of introduction to life is is really brutal. And I'm I'm you know my my massive mm-hmm. sympathies for for all yeah. of that. Yeah, I had had the staples, so it was kind of hard to walk up and. And I go up the elevator sometimes, <laughs> but um, yeah, but it, it was a struggle the first week, but um, after that it got better. So he was in for for nine days uh, in the uh, uh, in the NIC, right? Rather five days in the NICU, and then two additional days that we got was it afterwards, right? Yeah, yeah, afterwards to just kind of have general recovery. Okay, so he was out of sort of isolation. You could hold him more and all that kind of stuff after the five days? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Got it, got it. And then for the next month and a half, I'm sorry, and then for the next month and a half, he was on oxygen. So we had to have a tank that we'd port, you know, bring around with us. Mostly we just stayed at home, but yeah. Mm-hmm. I got it. And um, how, was, how, how was your guys' level of sort of stress and upset and tension and all of that during this time and I guess the couple of months afterwards? Um, it was pretty hard. Um, very stressful for both of us. Um, pretty much me too, just recovering. Um, we had to have him 
in in the bedroom a lot and uh, his tube his oxygen tube just didn't go as far as we wanted it to go so I was kind of like on the sensor <laughs> I was on his foot that was annoying <laughs> yeah there was an oxygen sensor on uh, that would attach to his, his foot and what it would say is you know if his oxygen saturation level went below a certain percentage I think it was 89% yeah. then it would beep and so none of us would really get much sleep because it would go many times during the night. During was that the, sorry, whole the month oxygen and a half. was being fed through his nose. Is that right? Yes, the oxygen was mm-hmm. being fed through his nose. Wow. Okay. Wow. And so yeah. it would dislodge or loosen or whatever, right? Yeah. 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 You'd have to put like little band aids on the sides of his um, face uh, to hold it in place. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, certainly not the easiest start to this cozy little room we call existence, (laughs) right? Yeah, it wasn't the easiest. Did you guys have, uh, is there family uh, around or or friends or people who could sort of help you out with this? Or was it uh, Uh, a bit more solitary? Absolutely. No, it it was, we had a lot from my side of the family and my wife's side of the family. Mm -hmm. And um, we had some friends as well, just Mm -hmm. everyone. So we did have a lot of decent support so um we're lds church jesus christ of latter-day saints and so people in the ward which is basically the geographic uh area congregation that's in the geographic area they would um, bring us meals and so that was quite a lot of help in regards to just being able to eat in that regard yeah and how did things play out uh, i guess after the oxygen nose tube was after removed after uh after about uh, six weeks, I think you said. Uh, how did things play yeah. out after that? Everything was a little bit easier. <laughs> Just kind of focused on getting killed myself, and um, and he was he was doing fine, and so he, yeah, he's. <laughs> yeah, he's just grown into a big boy, and. Uh, yeah, it's it's been fine. Uh, well, it's, there was the thing with his head. Oh yeah. Then there was. Yeah, he preferred to thing, sleep on a certain side of his head, and so what that did is that started to distort the shape of his head, and we were really worried about that, and um, they wanted to get him either a helmet or, after a while, they were thinking maybe we they needed to do the whole like crack his. Eh, I don't know how to explain it, but basically crack his head open and re reform it. And he would have the helmet in either case, but we we were thinking about it as much as we could and um, made the decision not to do that. And his head has formed just fine, and he seems to be happy and healthy. Yeah, I mean, just for those who don't know, and again, I'm no expert on this, so you know, look up any any sort of uh, uh, whatever you need to for this kind of stuff. But you know, the baby's head has to fit through this giant brain has to fit through a woman's vagina. Uh, and I'm sorry if I'm giving you PTSD, my friend, but uh, this is your wife I'm talking to. But uh, it's it's a big it's a big brain that's got to get through the vagina. And one of the ways that it it makes the journey is that the baby's head, uh, the baby's skull, is not fused in the way that an adult skull is. It's more flexible because it kind of needs to go into a bullet shape, so to speak. Probably not the right analogy, but you know, a torpedo. That's even worse, right? But it kind of has to mold itself to get through the woman's vagina or through the birth canal, and then. After the baby is born, the skull is still kind of soft, and it's still the, there's a different bunch of plates, if I remember rightly, that end up forming together. And guys, correct me wherever I've gone astray, but um, 
Yeah, so if the baby continues to sleep on one side, then there is a concern that the, um, the skull is going to uh, fuse together in a way that's not... I mean, no, very few people end up with the perfect Charlie Brown round head or whatever, but um, uh, the, the, I think the concern is that it might end up somewhat off in terms of its uh, rotundity, if, if that makes sense. Did I sort of get that correct? Yes, Hold can on. you hear me? Okay, okay, one sec. There we are. So it must have been us who dropped out. Okay, yeah, just make sure there's nothing else running on the uh, network if you can. So perfect. Yeah, we we don't have anything else running. Perfect. Yeah. So after the uh, after the six weeks, sorry, I was just talking about the, the sort of baby's skull and how it's kind of uh-huh. uh, it doesn't fuse together until later on uh, after birth, and That's you want to make yeah. sure it doesn't end up looking like an egg or a I don't know a pretzel or something. <laughs> exactly. And as far as mood personality i mean one of the reasons i'm a bit regretful about having only one child is i've always been kind of curious about how much of the effect the environment has on the personality right because mm-hmm. there seems to be from what i've read there's there's almost no aspect of personality that's not affected by genetics and i'm always kind of curious you know if we had two kids or three kids or four kids then it would be very interesting to see how their personalities were different based upon you know, a relatively similar environment. I mean, there's no such thing as the same environment because the second kid has the first kid uh, ahead already and, and so on, right? But yeah. how was his, uh, what was your perception of his sort of personality and uh, all of that uh, through this process mm-hmm. and beyond? Yeah, so my perception of, of his personality um, has been very interesting. So according to what my mom describes me being like when I was a kid, he's seemingly a carbon copy. And in many senses, um, in in regards to that, but um, I imagine I don't know. Well, basically, he is very active, very smart, like incredibly smart. Um, so for me, when, when when I was young, my mom would have stories of about being about his age, where I would crawl on top of the fridge or have the butcher a butcher knife in the in the goldfish bowl, just basically getting everywhere and doing everything. And he seems to be following suit of that. There are places that I don't think there's many places that he can't go right now. And the only thing that's really stopping him is that we have these, um, they're doors. Basically, we have doors kind of sideways blocking off certain areas. And that's the only thing that's stopping him from getting over. But even then, he's been starting to figure out how to move stuff to climb on top and get where he wants to. And for my for our little girl here, she seems to be a lot like her mother, where she's um, well. In this case, she seemed to have picked up a lot of emotion as well. So um, before she started getting used to it, unfortunately, she was very emotional. I guess you could say um, she would be very vocal about her displeasure. But um, I'll, I'll let my wife kind of explain a little bit more, or at least her perceptions. Yeah, he's he's exactly more like his dad, and yeah, pretty much more like me. Um, she's very calm, but very emotional. Sometimes can get into everything. I'm sorry to interrupt. If you boy. could just say, uh, oh sorry, yeah, just sorry. say son and daughter, he's if you could. Our That'd little boy, yeah, it's our fine. little boy, <laughs> um, can get into everything. Um, and our little girl can get into some things now. She's six six months, and she's just very. Um, she's rolling now, so she that's how she um, use her mobility. Yeah, <laughs> that's her her first mobility is uh, yeah rolling, and um, yeah, I 
I'm just <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Um, well, it's kind of funny in a way, right? I mean, we, we try to yeah. avoid cliches. We, we try to avoid mm-hmm. cliches in life, but they tend to creep up on us because you have oh, yeah. an aggressive explorer for a son and mm-hmm. a very emotional daughter, right? Yes, yes. So both of them. Oh, let's have the phone. Both back. of them are very. We're gonna have the phone back. Here, play the phone. Hard. <laughs> yeah. Anything else, John, that you can think of? I'm sorry. I'm, this is really hard for me. I'm not you're, you're doing you're doing wonderfully. That's uh, you know it's totally fine. Uh, if it's any consolation, I've had to do shows with my daughter when she was little in the room. Uh, it can be quite uh, quite quite exciting. So no, everything's everything's totally fine. Your family is not an interruption of this show. Uh, this is the cause of the show. So don't worry about that at all. Now, yeah, with regards so, to your son uh, and and uh-huh. what he's seen or experienced, has he had any particular? Um, exposure to um, aggression or, um, you know, has he seen any sort of aggressive cartoons or have them in songs or any any place that he might have picked up? Uh, and again, it may be entirely his sort of nature, which is fine too, but has he, do you think he's had any environmental um, exposure to aggression in the, in the family or in media or anything? Um, not that we've, we've seen. He's been pretty good. Um, the shows we've been watches, really, really good. Sorry, the shows and stuff that we we let him watch are things like, I think I told you it's Bluey. So it's basically, it's a show that has a bunch of kids games that can play, but per- particularly it helps teach the parents also the kinds of games they can play with their kids. And that one it has no no violence that I can readily perceive. <laughs> Okay, and when, I'm sorry if I missed this in the initial uh, message, but when did the physical aggression begin with your son? (laughs) I'm just trying to think. Um, I think it was when he was about, oh, yeah, when he became more mobile. So, so fifteen been, months. Yeah, so he was fifteen months, and she was probably three months old. And she was, yeah, or three rather, months. two well, months old. Yeah, because they're thirteen months apart. Mm-hmm. So, I think it was when he became more mobile. So fifteen months. And how did so he? Uh, how did he greet the uh, arrival of his delightful sister? <laughs> he didn't like her very much. I think one of the first um, impressions that I remember seeing of him is he was, when was, how old was he when he trembled with, seemingly trembled with rage? Uh, He was 16 or 17 months, maybe. Yeah. It seemed like he was trembling with rage at one point. Do you remember the situation for it? Because you were giving her more attention, I think. I think it was just more attention. Yeah. You were giving him, so he got really upset. Wait, sorry, you were giving him more attention or her more attention? Her Her more more attention because she needed our our kind of hands-on attention at the moment because she was doing something or another. And so he saw that, and I remember perceiving almost like a visible trembling rage that he seemed to express at her. And I'm... You know, I don't recall any particular 
reasoning why I've never I've never been angry visit even visibly angry at my wife or at him so I'm not sure where it would have you know reasonably come from in that uh, reasonably I'm sorry <laughs> he's a toddler right I mean he's he's not reasoning things out right right that is true he's not reasoning things out he is feeling his pure emotion yeah and listen just just so you know and I'm, I'm sure you're aware of this but just to sort of remind everyone we evolved as a species in situations of extremely scant resources and so everyone's like oh they're as close as brothers and it's like well siblings you know half of sibling relationships are abusive and that's even by, not, not even by free domain standards that's just by like typical run-of-the-mill general psychological standards like half of sibling relationships are actually abusive and uh, I think by free domain standards that number would probably be quite a bit higher and one of the reasons for that is that siblings compete for resources and it's kind of programmed into us in a deadly foundational kind of way because when you're scant of resources in the family. Nobody wants to be the runt of the litter because the runt of the litter usually doesn't make it, right? So I think that's really important to sort of process that he was kind of born into a situation that his body probably perceived as scarcity, right? Because his body doesn't know anything about... I'm sorry, would you guys mind? I hate to ask if oh, you could just sorry. mute I while I'm talking. Muted. Sorry about that. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I meant to be muted. Oh, let's go get that. It's, uh, yeah. Okay. So your son's body doesn't know anything about natal intensive care unit. It doesn't know anything about breech birth. It doesn't know anything about need for oxygen or sensors. Your son's body would probably have been born into a situation that deep down he would have perceived as resources are somewhat scarce because there was a lot of uh, stress and danger in his birth. And, you know, that usually is interpreted as scarce resources. So if your body, I think, is primed for scarce resources or lack of parental attention, uh, and a lack of parental attention usually has to do with scarce resources as well, because your parents are working all the time to provide food, which means resources are kind of scarce, or there's a huge number of other siblings, which means competition for resources is fierce. And so deep down, his body may have reacted to sort of the initial six-week stress of his, um, his birth and, and early toddlerhood or early infancy with, uh, okay, resources are scarce. And then I think that turns into a situation where the competition that is perceived to be coming from the sibling is that much more intense. And so as you're paying more attention to the sibling, if his body is like, scarce resources... As you're paying more attention to the sibling, his anger and desire to protect his own access to resources is probably quite high, and that would be one guess. Obviously, I'm no expert in this. It's just my amateur opinion over the internet as usual, but that would be my one guess. And I think there's a lot you can do about that, but I think that would be the one uh, situation where uh, I would look first for the aggression, if that makes sense. That makes some sense here, yeah. A lot of sense, actually. Now, with regards to your own upbringing, that is you and your wife's, uh, were there any markers or environmental indicators of scarce resources when you were kids? So for me, when I was young, let's see here, when I, when I was little, we grew up out in the boonies in the west, on the West Coast. Um, but I think during my time when I was born, we were starting to do reasonably well. My father worked in the defense industry in aerospace. And so with that, he, I mean, 
he made a, a decent chunk of money in, in regards in regards to that. And even as time went on, more and more, he seemed to be doing. We seemed to be doing better and better off in that regard. I would say we were upper middle class on my side of the family. And um, yeah, I mean, besides, uh, perhaps I'm resorting to stereotype again, but uh, we have Scottish heritage on my side, on my my dad's side of the family. So he was very. Uh, seemingly tight-fisted with with expenditures. So, for example, you know, we'd go and get to McDonald's as a family. We'd get two Happy Meals, and that would be between the four of us kids. You know, we'd we'd be splitting that. And um, so there was enough provided for us, but there also was a seeming perception of scarcity to some degree. And for my wife, I'll let her... Go ahead, yeah, if you go ahead, sorry. Yeah, I'll let her describe that. Your childhood bringing. <clears throat> Let's see. Both my parents are. They worked in the school district. Uh, my mom was a teacher um, at a high school. Uh, pretty much most of my life. Um, she's still teaching. Um, she works at another high school. Um, my dad. He's he was in the janitorial um, area where he was the head janitor um, a lot of the time. I worked at many different schools. Um, my life was, you know, it was, it was reasonably good. Um, like, you know, I was brought up in a good family and uh, loved very much. And even though they were off, you know, working, um, you know, I felt lonely sometimes, but uh, but there were I always had friends around and uh, brother and sister <laughs> to take care of me, uh, older brother and older sister. So it was it was tough, but um, you know, you gotta do what you gotta do to make money. So. <laughs> Well, no, technically. I mean, technically you don't, right? Yeah. Technically you don't need both parents working uh, for most people in, in the West. I mean, say, oh, well, yes, but if you want a nice house and you want two cars, it's like, yeah, for sure, if you want a lot of money. But in general as well, if you look at childcare costs as a whole, usually in particular for the woman. Disconnected for me. Can you hear me now? Hello, can you hear? We can hear. We're just seeing if the connection issue is still happening. No, I. You can you hear me? We can hear you, yeah. We also have the kids um, making noise at the moment. No, I, I can hear. <laughs> if you could mute while I'm talking yeah. again, that would be great. So you don't need two parents working to raise children in the West. I mean, as you know, the West is, is pretty wealthy, uh, even with taxes and all of that. And for the most part, having a second parent working, usually the mom, by the time you factor in extra costs of the second job and childcare expenses and so on, it generally doesn't make much money. You then don't make much money by having the woman work. And certainly for the first couple of years of a child's life, my recommendation from the very beginning of this show has always been one parent should stay home. I mean, for the most part, it should be the wife, uh, the mother, because she's breastfeeding and and that's pretty significant to uh, the child development and so on. But for the first couple of years, yeah, of course. I mean, as, as the mother should stay home. Now, that's kind of an old school way of looking at things because there was all of this propaganda starting in the 50s about women got to go to work and, and you can't trust your man. And I mean, you can see all these endless Nicole Kidman starring movies of 
women being betrayed by their (laughs) white husbands or whatever. It's always the same sort of thing, right? But uh, this mistrust, uh, you know, if you've got to have your own income because he could just dump you for a younger model and you've got to go every So this sort of trust thing has been kind of whittled away and there's been a lot of propaganda about get out there and work stuff, which, you know, I'm speaking to your wife here, you know, this may have been more the case with, with your uh, parents. But I think the important thing to recognize deep down is like what happens to the child's sense of the world if the child's parents are mostly absent. Right? So you have to sort of look at how we evolved. Now, I'm not saying we've got to live exactly as how we evolved, right? I'm, I'm fine with a smallpox vaccine. I think it's a good thing. But we do sort of have to look at how our lives, how our bodies, how our unconscious developed. And for the most part, of course, women were full-time mothers throughout most of our evolution. They didn't have jobs. I mean, they had jobs insofar as, you know, there'd be some hunter gathery stuff that would be going on. Uh, they'd go and get, you know, the herbs, the roots. They might have a little vegetable garden and so on. But uh, it was the men who were hunting and raising the livestock and fixing the fences and taming the horses and, you know, whatever else happens in my basically city cityfied life about our evolution. But so the question would be for what, what signals does mother absence give to the baby? What? Because... We're not born, I mean, it's an amazing thing about our lives, and it's true for most mammals and maybe even some non-mammals, but we're born not knowing what kind of world we're being born into. Is it a world of peace? Is it a world of war? Is it a world of plenty? Or is it a world of hunger? Is it a world of health? Or is it a world of disease? Is it a world of strife? Or is it a world of peace? I mean, we don't know. And so we're born, and these sort of antennae come out from our bodies and probe. What kind of world am I going to have to grow up in? What kind of world am I going to have to adapt to? And that world generally didn't change. If it was a world of hunger, right? So, I mean, Scottish people are kind of famously cheap, right? There's uh, an old story. When I was a kid growing up, there was the Englishman, the Irishman, and the Scotsman jokes. And one of the ones I remember was... Uh, a friend, uh, the Englishman, the Irishman, the Scotsman are at a funeral. A friend of theirs has died. And the Englishman says, because he wants to show off his wealth, he takes out 50 pounds and throws it into the grave and says, there's something you can buy drinks with in the afterlife. And the Irishman also wants to show his wealth. He takes out 100 pounds, throws it into, that's like dollars for those who <laughs> throws it into the grave. Ah, there's something for you to buy some drinks for in your old age. And then... The Scotsman says, ah, I got that beat. And he writes a check for a thousand pounds and throws it into the grave. Because, <laughs> you know, it's cheap and you can't cash a check when you're dead. So, or the other one is um, Englishman, Irishman, Scotsman walking down the street. A robber comes out and says, Give me all your cash. And the uh, Englishman hands over 10 pounds, and the Irishman hands over 20 pounds. And the Scotsman turns to the Englishman and says, Ah, uh, here's that 30 pounds. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> you're going to lose it anyway, right? So, but look, I mean, Scotland is at like the northern foreskin penis end of <laughs> England and it's bloody cold and it's a harsh climate and you've got to preserve your resources. It's hard fishing. It's uh, cold weather. It's hard growing season. It's thin soil. It's, you know, it's brutal. So you've got to sort of think, okay, from your baby's standpoint, what would be going on in the world that the mother would be absent for the vast majority of the day, right? Why, where would the, why would the mother be gone? Why would the mother be absent? 
Well, so from the baby standpoint, and again, this is more for your wife growing up, uh, but um, the baby interprets mother absence as things must be pretty bad out there. I mean, how, how low on food are we that the mother has to not be around the baby? Why? Because she's got to go hunt with the men, because she's uh, got to go and try and trap some rabbits, because like, what the hell is going on? that mom is gone for most of the day. Now, we can say later on, well, you know, but I was a feminist and I wanted to be equal to a man and there's mistrust of the patriarchy. And, but none of that matters anything. None, none of those intellectual abstractions mean anything to the baby. The baby is just scanning. It's like deep down in the reptile brain of the baby, the deep mammal brain of the baby is just scanning and saying, okay, what kind of environment? Are we in an environment where there's peace, stability, and plenty? Okay, well, then I'll make sure I'll, I'll turn on puberty later. Right? And, and childhood stressors lead to, well, we know this, right? I mean, the whole Bomb in the Brain series, which I've got on Library, on BitChute, and other places, the whole Bomb in the Brain series goes into great detail about how much changes in a child's physiology when they're exposed to early stressors. And mother absence is a significant early stressor for a baby, a very, very significant early stressor for a baby. And so if you're... Uh, parents are working. I, I believe that you interpret that as, man, things are tight. Holy crap. It's so bad that the mother who's desperately needed to protect and breastfeed her children can't even spare the time to be around them. So this is a time. And, you know, you sort of look at this. The kids that are coming out of these mother working families are often, you know, they're pretty stressed. They're pretty susceptible to propaganda. They're, you know, a lot of these uh, hard leftists and, and medium leftists and so on. And it's kind of rough. And... To me, it's, uh, I mean, it's, a, it's one of the greatest tragedies of the modern world. It's just how babies are growing up, uh, just passed around like hacky sacks in a way. And so from that standpoint, looking at your own upbringings, it's funny because you talked a lot about money, which I understand. But of course, kids don't really understand the concept of money. All they can do is probe whether the parents are there or not. They can probe the level of stress that the parents are experiencing. Uh, and they can probe all of the signals about whether they are going to be growing up in a situation of peace and plenty or scarcity and conflict. And, uh, you know, uh, hypersexuality comes out of uh, this kind of scarcity situation, right? Because if, you're, uh, if your lives uh, are defined by scarcity, then you want to kind of just have a lot of sex, have a lot of kids and, you know, like the rabbits, right? As opposed to the R-selected versus the K-selected and all of that, which is why puberty hits earlier, promiscuity tends to and you don't tend to uh, tends to increase, and you don't tend to look for sort of long term consequences that much, which is why uh, trauma as 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 children is also associated with you know drug addiction and other forms of addiction, gambling, uh, sexuality, as I mentioned, uh, uh, alcoholism, smoking, and so on. So, when it comes to resources, it's not money fundamentally, because you know the the poor little rich girl cliche of the the girl whose parents are very wealthy, and she's lonely because she's raised by nannies uh, and they come and go, right? And so for a kid, if you've got nannies, right, or, or just a, a succession of caregivers, your body interprets that deep down as they're dying, right? Uh, and, and that's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. If you have a succession of caregivers, if you're in daycare, then there's usually, I mean, I worked in a daycare. There's a lot of rotation among the staff because it's a pretty low rent position. And so you bond with people and then they vanish. Well, why would that happen? in a tribe. Well, because there's disease, there's war, there's famine, there's predation. Maybe they got grabbed by some neighboring tribe and 
used as sex slaves or something for the women and uh, maybe used as, ma- as slaves, economic slaves for the men and so on. And so when it comes to resource, the fundamental resource that the baby is looking for is parental time and attention. And so when you guys were growing up, I guess that's sort of my refined question. I'm sorry I wasn't clear about it before. My, my refined question is how much individual parental time and attention did you receive uh, when you were very young? Hey, Steph. So for me, um, when I was when I was growing up, the parental time and attention I received was pretty good. My wife, or excuse me, my mom, <laughs> my mom was uh, was available, very free, you know, very available, pretty much nonstop because she was a stay at home mom. And with that, I was able to grow up and get taken care of by, by her. I would say, you know, what there is a, a factor that may be affecting it as well. So. And this would stem from her her um, history as well, as I'd say she had a degree of agoraphobia. So when when my mom was growing up, she had um, so to, to have her behave, my grandma would would say, like, for example, if she's acting up in the store. Hey, everybody's looking at you. Everybody's seeing what you're, you know, seeing what you're doing. And so with that, that caused her to have uh, a lot of. Uh, uh, well, problems. Can you get that turned off? Thank you. So with that, she had a lot of self-consciousness in regards to that. So I would say she developed a degree of agoraphobia in, in regards to that. So I don't recall much of that growing up, uh, but now seeing the signs later on, I would say that that was somewhat the case. But I had three sisters, two older, one younger. And so my oldest sister, she would be able to, you know, to help in that regard. So she's about five years older than I am. So I would say to a degree, there was some that was tasked upon her to be able to help with us. But my, my mom would, you know, she would basically force herself to, to do a lot of things to take care of us because we were important to her. So, well, so there sorry was, to interrupt, you know, but so sure. if I understand this correctly, uh, agoraphobia is more than just, I don't particularly like to go outside. Like it's a really... It can be crippling for some people, for sure, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. although it prepared them well for the pandemic, I suppose. But um, with your yeah. mother, I mean, so agoraphobia would transmit itself to children as the world is dangerous, right? That is true, yes. Right, right, okay. So that the world is dangerous is a transmission of uh, the need for either submission or aggression. Right. So if the world is dangerous, there's, there's two ways that you can survive, right? Because you can't negotiate on an equal basis with human beings when the world is dangerous. So your, your twin strategies are you submit or you are aggressive. In other words, it's sort of like in prison, right? You're either, you either have to become someone's girlfriend or you have to be someone's boyfriend, right? You can't sort of be, be just equals. And I guess my question is with regards to you, if this formulation is correct, and, you know, it's not obviously absolute or or black and white, um, when you look at your sort of upbringing, was there any sense that you had about, okay, when I go out into the world, can I negotiate as an equal or do I have to be the tough guy or do I have to submit or anything like that? Um, We've actually already spoken on this before. Uh, This is Leon from three years ago from the furry conversation. Yes, I thought I recognized the voice, but go on. Yeah, so so my mother would use a lot of um, reading books and movies and shows and stuff to escape 
from the scary world, I guess you could say. And so I did develop that to a degree as well. So, so with that, I, you know, didn't have, I, I didn't have the male peership that I needed to develop healthy, uh, sorry, uh, properly healthy, um, relationships between male peers and also to a degree with my father in, in that regard. So yes, this is that situation, but also, um, and maybe we'll go into this a little bit later, but since that point, I have well, done a couple of di- different things, but particularly I, I am doing some talk therapy to, to work on that. Okay. Um, uh, so with regards to sort of parental attention from your wife, whose parents mm-hmm. worked, what was that like? Um, I'll have to get her in just a second. She's putting the baby down, putting her, putting her in. So from what I understand of her situation, that her, her parents both worked during her time growing up. So she did have, like she mentioned, her, her siblings to help out with her. But uh, I'll let her kind of expound on that a little bit more when she gets a moment. Yeah, sure. I mean, but, but siblings, I mean, it's not like they don't count, but they don't solve the problem. Right. So if, if parents are absent, then also, you know, what happens is, too, so when parents are absent from their children's lives, and again, I know that they weren't completely gone, but, you know, for a parent, an hour, sorry, for a child, an hour is a week, like a toddler, right? I mean, if you say to some, some toddler, I'll be back in an hour, I mean, <laughs> don't really understand that, right? So, so for, uh, for kids, too, toddlers, they're also programming themselves for, okay, what it's going to be like when I'm a parent, right? And again, assuming that nothing changes in the environment, which it rarely did. In uh, human history, um, the kids are saying, okay, well, my parents clearly don't have a strong enough bond with me to stay home with me. In other words, they're not sacrificing. Like, either, either things are really scarce, and the only way they can care for me is not see me, is kind of dump me on the siblings or dump me on whoever, right? Then things must be super scarce, right? Now, if they're not scarce, though, then it means that I'm growing up in a situation where the parent-child bond is just not that strong. And that's pretty important, right? Because if the parent-child bond is so strong that the mother can't leave the child, but the situation is so scarce in terms of resources that it means that the family starves to death, then the parental bond is fatal, right? <laughs> it means she should be out gathering nuts and berries and doing whatever, right, to get food. That's how scarce things are. But instead, she's home with the baby and everyone's going to die, right? So parental bond then becomes kind of fatal, in the situation where there are a lot of resources, or more, at least a reasonable amount of resources, but the parental bond is still very weak, then that just means that there's a culture of not bonding with your children or not putting your children's needs first. You know, it's kind of funny, right? Because there's a whole court standard in the West, which is really subtle and, and subjective and, you know, obviously messy, called, you know, well, we want to do what's in the best interest of the child, right? That's sort of the legal standard in divorces and stuff like that. It's a whole cottage industry, which probably actually buys some very expensive cottages of evaluating this and making recommendations from psychologists and social workers and all that. But, you know, if, if we sort of, if we were to organize, and this is partly sort of what I'm writing about in the book Peaceful Parenting, but if we, if we just said, okay, best interest of the child, that's a legal standard, what if we just make that a personal standard? You know how, like, it's like a legal standard not to murder people, maybe we can make that a personal standard too. But with this idea of, so well, what's in the best interest of the child? What's in the best interest in the child, for the child, without a doubt, is um, parental, specifically maternal, 
constant uh, attention when they're young. You know, because life is all about pay me now or pay me later, right? You can enjoy your smoking and then you get lung cancer. You, you can enjoy your eating and then you get fat and diabetic and whatever you get, uh, you lose toes and so on, right? But it's all about pay me now, pay me later. So the women can say, oh, I'm going to just go out and work. And, oh, kids don't care. They're resilient, right? People say, oh, kids are resilient. It's like, no, no, it just means your conscience is looking for latitude, right? But um, what is in the best interest of the child is to model a parental bond so strong that when the child grows up, it retains the ability, he or she retains the ability to bond strongly and make decisions based upon the best interests of the other person, and in particular, of course, the children. So uh, just let me know when your wife uh, toodles back and we'll pick it up with her. But siblings don't count. Again, it's not like they're immaterial, but the parental bond is what counts. Uh, Siblings can't breastfeed, obviously. And siblings themselves, you know, if we say that a 10-year-old can raise a child, then obviously a 10-year-old can drive, uh, a 10-year-old can vote, uh, a 10-year-old can sign contracts, because all of these are far less important than raising a child. So the devolution of parenting into the hands of siblings is, uh, to me, the height of irresponsibility. It's very destructive to the relationship between the siblings, too, because siblings should be playing together. And to give one sibling authority over another sibling creates the seeds of what can turn into lifelong conflicts. It's unfair to a brother or a sister to say, you raised the child, or you're primarily responsible for the child, or you're significantly responsible for the child. I'm not talking like on occasion or here or there, or, you know, the older sibling, you know, keep an eye on your younger brother. That's totally fine. I mean, that's, that's natural and that's fine. But if significant parental parenting responsibilities devolve onto the sibling, the younger sibling is going to experience a lot of hostility and anxiety, and is going to experience a lot of resentment from the elder sibling who feels like I could be out playing, but I got to watch little Johnny or Jesse or Susie or whatever. And so saying, well, you know, my sibling stepped in where my parents weren't around. It's like, well, that's, that's not solving the fundamental problem. And in fact, in many ways, it's making, making it worse. Yeah. And my wife has returned. If you don't mind doing a real quick iteration for her to hear to respond to. Sure. Um, so with regards to resources, it's not primarily money. It's parental time and attention, and I guess I'm just sort of curious what that was like for you as a kid. Um, as long as I can remember, uh, I think when I was a little, like, uh, so from when I was a little kid, um, my mom did uh, Young Mothers, and I was able to be with her there. Um, I don't know what that is. So that was young mothers is just women who have had children at a very young age. So like a teenager, 16. Um, And so she was a teacher there at this young mother's place. And I was just able to be with her and around her, which was kind of nice to be around her and then just you know to be with other kids my age too so i just remember she worked a lot with like childhood and um you know childhood development stuff and um and just (laughs) processing um but she she's just been a teacher all my life um i think she went to college kind of like when my sister was born. Um, 
And then I think she was at home more with her and my brother. And then I feel like she's just worked, you know, a lot, all of my life. So it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, it's hard. It's a, why did she, you know, yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. Why did, why did she work so a, much? Why did she work so much rather than spend time with her kids? Um, just like insurance stuff and, um, just they, I guess they had a lot of bills and things that they had to pay off. And, um, I think it was part of my grandpa to her dad is kind who was kind of strict on her. Like she needed to go to college. She needed to, you know, get a job so that she could provide for her family. Cause she's the oldest in um, her family of eight, <laughs> eight children. So she had a lot of pressure on her growing up too. So that could be part of it. But what about like, you? What about you as a, as a kid, right? So as a kid, your mom's going to work. Yeah. And you're hanging onto her leg, begging and pleading mm -hmm. with her not to go. And she goes. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, what was that like for you emotionally? I mean, deep down, what did that make you think about your mom and your bond and your relationship and all? But what I can remember uh, just as a kid um, is that it was, it was very emotional. Like I didn't, I didn't want to be away from her. I really loved her and, you know, we were really close. Um, me and my dad are really close too, but, um, you know, a kid always loves their mom. Um, but being in preschool, at least that there, there was a preschool and, um, a high school she worked at and I was able to be in that little preschool. And then, um, when I got older, I was able to go to preschool and kindergarten at the same time. So she would be able to take a break from her classes and be able to take me over to kindergarten which was which was nice um because we were able to you know kind of talk about things that you know happened that morning and um yeah but but it was it's, it's emotional i'd say so you know very you think, sad sorry to interrupt what do you think deep down you thought about your value to your mother if she kept leaving Sorry, repeat that again. What do you think deep down you thought about your value to your mother if she kept leaving? My value? Can you, ex um, can you express more? Or well, okay. So let's, let's take a, a sort of silly example, right? So mm -hmm. let's say, you know, back when you were a single young lady, that mm -hmm. uh, you would go on a date and let's say 10 minutes into the date, the guy says, uh, oh, you know what? There's a, yeah, I'm sorry. I got to end the date. There's um, something on TV I wanted to watch. And he just gets up and leaves. Uh, mm -hmm. How do you feel the date went? That's <laughs> be horrible, <laughs> I guess. Um, well, what would you, what would you uh, interpret about what the uh, young man said and did? He doesn't, he doesn't care about me. Like, yeah, he's not having he, a good time. Maybe he's just making yeah, he's, some excuse. Yeah. But he's not, you know, because, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, if, if the date's going well, you don't want it to end, right? 
Yeah, no. And then eventually, you don't want to end it enough that you get married. <laughs> now you can't mm-hmm. end it, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. So, yeah. yeah. When right. a mother and the child always, always, always experiences it as abandonment, mm-hmm. if the yeah. mother leaves the child on a regular basis, mm-hmm. what does the child, specifically you, experience as to the value you have to your mother? <laughs> She's abandoning me. Well, either there's something incredibly important that she has to do every day. Mm -hmm. Or, or she just doesn't care about me that much. At least she cares about me less than this mystery thing she's going to, right? Yeah. I mean, that's just a basic fact. If if the guy leaves the date because of the television show, then he cares more about the television show than than you or the date, right? Yeah. So the big mystery to kids is, okay, why is mom going? Why is mom leaving me all the time? Mm -hmm. That's a big question. So what happens is a lot of times the kids say, well, I mean, there's obviously something super important. Maybe she's a superhero. Maybe she's holding up the world. Maybe she's Mm -hmm. making sure gravity continues. Like maybe something super important, right? But then what happens is you get a little older and you realize that your mom was Mm -hmm. leaving you or abandoning you, so to speak, for what? Oh, well, you know, she's she's a teacher. It's like, okay, so she cares about instructing kids, but she cares about mm-hmm. instructing strangers' kids more than she cares about me. That's yeah. not, That doesn't make sense to a kid, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and then you find out that, well, a lot of bills to pay. It's like, yeah, but those bills were mostly optional. Mm-hmm. And it, as you know, as it turns out, uh, mom didn't end up paying that many bills after taxes and expenses and travel costs and clothing costs and lunches out and all mm-hmm. of that, right? And mom didn't really. So mm-hmm. what the hell was she abandoning me for? That's the big question, right? That that kids mm-hmm. have to sort of uh, puzzle through when they're little. Yeah, yeah. And how did you puzzle That's... through that? Uh, I'm I'm trying to. <laughs> It's been a yeah, a very long time. But um I remember I just I'm, I had friends, I guess I would go play with my friends a lot. Um No no that's just, that, hang on, that those are practical things okay. that you did in consequence. I'm asking you about the oh, emotional okay. processing. Come on, oh. you're supposed to be the emotional one. This should be easy. It's like asking your husband um, to build a bridge. It's just kinda of crazy. Um so emotionally wise um, I just, I, I think I bottle it up, um, sometimes. Okay. That's good. Um, but what do you bottle up? What I are you bottling up? Yeah. I, I would emotionally, uh, you know, let it out, uh, eventually. And, um, and then I would tell my mom, you know, this is how I feel, blah, 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 blah. And, uh, then she would, you know, try to comfort me. Um, as much as she could, um, but I just I held it in. I was I just was one of those kids who, you know, I just hold it in to the the very last last moment, and and then I let it out. Uh, I, yeah, right. Just because if you, if you say to someone, "Don't go," yeah, yeah. That person goes. Mm-hmm. Oof, oof, yeah. right. Yeah. Mhm. And yeah. if it's your mom and you say to her as millions and millions of kids across the west say every day to their moms, "Mommy, don't go. Don't yeah. go. Mm-hmm. Please don't go." 
stay with yeah. me. I love you. Don't go. Mm-hmm. Don't go. Please, mommy, don't go. Stay with me. I yeah. love you. And the mom mm-hmm. pries the kid's hands off their leg. Yeah. <laughs> and leaves. Close the door mm-hmm. and go. I mean, yeah. the kids sink into anxiety and depression, right? Because they've got mm-hmm. no hold over their mothers. They can't trust the bond. Yeah. And why is mommy going? So they invent yeah. some big story. And then they find out when they're older that mom went for, you know, maybe the equivalent of 5 or $10 an hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, if, if someone came along to you and said, uh, I'll give you half a million dollars to leave your husband, what would you say? Um, no. Right. I, I love him. But your so mom much. took five or ten bucks an hour to leave her children. Yeah. What the hell? Yeah. I mean, if somebody said, I'll give you $1,000 to leave your husband, you're like, hmm, you know, 1000 bucks. that's uh, that's not bad. I could invest yeah. that and get $1,100. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, how would your husband feel if you were like, well, oh, you know, honey, somebody offered me 1000 bucks to leave you, and I'm like, man, that's pretty good. I'm off. I mean, he'd feel yeah. like crap, right? Yeah, he'd feel really crap. All right, so somebody's offering your mom, hey, here's 5 or 10 bucks an hour after taxes and expenses. To, to leave your kids? Mm-hmm. And they're like, yeah, sounds good to me. I'm in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's crap, right? Mm-hmm. It's terrible. Yeah. Now, it's great for the powers that be, sever the parental bond and get... And the thing is, too, it's, it, it doesn't even work out to make any money for the family as a whole in general, mm-hmm. right? Because just pouring more yeah. women into the workplace simply drove down the wages of men. Just supply and demand. So if women weren't in the workplace when the kids were young, the wages of the husbands would go up proportionally and they'd end up making uh-huh. uh, the same, if not more money. Uh-huh. Huh. So the reason I'm talking about all of this, right, obviously, is yeah. <laughs> where does this kind of aggression come from, come from with, your, with your son, right? Well, uh-huh. I believe that it would come from a, a perception of scarcity, which might be the echoes of harmed or scarred parental bonds with you guys when you were kids. Mm-hmm. And it also comes out of, a, uh, obviously, a lack of empathy, right? And I'm not saying he's unempathetic, but just in the moments that he's aggressive, right? Aggression is very much the opposite of, of empathy, right? Because if you really care for someone else, then you can't hit them or scratch them or bite them or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So what I'm looking for is places where bonds may be weak, places where empathy may be um, diminished. And also I'm looking for signals of scarcity that your son may have experienced. So that's kind of why I'm sort of uh, uh, probing these old wounds, you know, which I know is not fun, but obviously it's quite important. Yeah, Steph, this, um, I'm not entirely sure where the wounds are for our current relationship with, you know, my, me and my son and my wife and my son, because uh, right now, in terms of time that I can spend with him, so just due to the situation of how much he wants to play with me when I'm at home and how much I do play with him at home, um, I can't work from home. So if I'm on the computer, he's going to be reaching over this door that we, well, 
that we tried before to segregate or separate where I have to focus on my work, he would reach over and say, daddy, daddy, you know, just call for me constantly. And I, you know, it's hard for me to deny him in that regard. So I have to physically go into the workplace. And I'd say right now with the amount of work that I do, I'd say it's somewhat irresponsible, the amount of work that I do. So I'll go in, let's say, 8.30 in the morning. I'll be in and I'll be home by noon or so. So technically, you know, the employer wants the eight hours a day, but with the overall goal period, so we'll say a six-month period, they have certain goals set out for me to accomplish. I work in, well, we'll just say sales. So with that, I have had a a very surprising amount of luck in regards to success. So right now, for the towards the end of the year, I'm pretty much on track for accomplishing my goals as what I would accomplish in, or what they would want me to accomplish in an eight-hour day. So for me, I'm getting home 12.30. So I'm getting in 8.30, coming out 12.30, and you know, a good chunk of the time, I'm not necessarily working when I'm there. But that's that's a different story. But basically, I'll come home, and the second I get home, to the second he goes to bed and she goes to bed, I am on them. Like, I am playing with him. I am taking care of her as best I can, and, you know, we'll just go outside. So he's he's my best friend. My little boy is my best friend, so I'll come home. He's usually waking up from his nap about that time, and we'll go outside. We'll play in our park that's 50 feet away, and we'll go walk around. We'll point out stuff. Right now, we walk to each in front of each of the cars that are in the parking lot area, and I'll point out the different logos of the cars. And so he knows the word logo, and you know he'll say some of the, the logo names or the, the maker or whatever brand names of cars. And we'll do we'll do tons of little activities like that. So at work, I printed out um, streets like um, on paper. Listen, I'm sorry to interrupt. I, I I'm sorry to interrupt. I I get the picture, and I I just want to make sorry. sure that we don't try and deal with where it doesn't hurt, <laughs> right? Sure, sure. You go to the doctor. So, and you yeah, say, we well, it doesn't hurt, hurt here, does. and it doesn't hurt so, here. So I get all of that, and I I I appreciate you telling me that. I really do. It's very helpful. But here's my question: When do you get angry at him, and he knows it? When he hits her. Okay, so, when so he how does that play out? So let's say he's just hit her. Tell me what you would say okay. and do. Yeah, let's say, for example, they're both playing in the mirror that we have laid out on the ground that's, you know, kind of vertical, and they're looking at, each, at themselves in the mirror and playing. Um, she has a toy. He will take her toy, <laughs> and she will, you know, I'll try and get her just a replacement toy as quick as I can. Wait, wait, hang and on, hang on. Still, wait, wait. Sure. Why would you why would you get her a replacement toy? So that way she still has something to be occupied with. Ah, so but what you're doing is you're removing from her the negative stimuli in her. Sorry, you're removing from your son the negative stimuli that he's creating in your daughter. That's true. Yes. So for him it's like, well, you know, it's no problem to take a toy cuz she'll just get another one. That's true. Dang, yeah, that is true. So, also, there are times where he'll look at her. They're playing. They'll be playing right, you know, next to each other. He'll look at her, and then he'll hit her on the head, slap her on the head. Randomly, seemingly randomly. And we've been trying to work on this one for quite some time. Of, like, why, you know? We, we tried... <laughs> 
increasing the amount of time and attention we give him. We've tried. Wait, hang on, hang on, hang on. I'm so sure. sorry. I'm so sorry. Sure. So he hits her on the head, and your response is to increase the amount of time and attention you give him. Dude. Um, yeah, that's. Dude. Yep. That so would not. That's him. rewarding. That Come behavior. On. Yeah. Because we had we had times where we'd say, well, we had a time period b- before where we would take him away and and say no, you know, say no hit and put him in his crib and isolate him basically from everybody else. And he would cry and, um, well, I'd feel bad, particularly bad. And we just weren't sure if that was the appropriate way to go because um, I think in Peaceful Parent, Happy Kid, it says to, or I, we under, or yeah, we understood it as, if he hits her, take her away so that way he doesn't have more opportunity to hurt her. And that's how we interpret it. And then talk to him and say, yeah, as best we can. Okay, now, listen, This, uh, you guys are fantastic parents. I really want to just mention this. Like, because, you know, if I'm going to rag on you a little, it's only because I have the obvious outside eye. And sure. so none of this is obvious, and you guys are fantastic parents. I just want to, want to mention that up front, right, just to be really, really yeah. clear about yeah. that. And this is like parenting jujitsu. Okay, peaceful parenting is not pacifist parenting. The okay. first virtue is honesty. Honesty, yep. Honesty. You are angry at your son when he hits your daughter. Of course you are. Yes. Right. So I think if you move into abstract strategy and you deny your son the emotional reality of your experience, he's not getting the right signal to adjust his behavior. Okay. So we have had time the, where we, Sorry, go ahead. Sure. We, we do. We ha- did have a time in the beginning where we would do a purely emotional response. She would be crying and we, I, you know, I'd holler at him. I'd yell at him and say, no hit. I've, I've had times where I use my scary voice and it, not well. It wasn't like a tactical use of my scary voice. Well, to some degree, it was, but I just let him have the full force of my emotion. I just say, you know, no hit. Well, I'll just go with my full expression, no hit. And so I just use my angry voice and see he's already paid attention to me right then and there. He's was playing on the side, but yeah, it's okay. Well, uh, see now, um, but that's that's the challenge, right? So the challenge for a kid is, daddy is solving my aggression with aggression yes that's a mixed signal right yeah because a kid he look he's amoral <laughs> right because he's a kid yes right? he's yeah. an amoral power seeker he is seeking for resources he can't afford morality till he gets much older right right because you know i mean again back to the sort of evolutionary situation of the species is like no i'm going to be very sensitive to my other siblings needs and give them all my food it's like great i'm dead right exactly yeah. so he's just like he's just trying to figure out i had a a, a parent uh, that i knew uh, some years ago and the kid was really manipulative and he knew about me and he asked for my help and i spent uh, some time chatting with his daughter and then i spent some time chatting with him and and uh i asked his daughter why do you do x y and z and we talked about it for a bit and then do you know what she said because it works, right? Because it works is 
the fundamental pre-moral mindset, right? You know, why, why is there shenanigans in the U.S. election? Because it works. Right? It's not a moral standard. It's uh, just you do what works. And, and so the question is, how is aggression working for him? Now, if he gets parental attention from aggression, then that's what kids want the most. We know that kids prefer parental attention to anything else because most times kids will act badly just to get parental attention. So they prefer punishment because that means that they get attention from the parents. And attention from the parents is what we're all programmed to achieve, no matter what, no matter, even if it's negative attention, better than no attention, right? So if a child's behavior that is negative or harmful is continuing, it's because of a couple of reasons, again, in my humble opinion. The first is that it gets attention. The second is that it gets some positive result outside of attention. And in this case, it would be, I guess, even the more, more attention or, or playing with you or whatever, right? And he's just doing what works. And the question, the fundamental question is, okay, well, what, what is it that works for him and why does it work? Now, if you understand, like, I've always said this about society, right? How should society deal with wrongdoers? through ostracism, right? Now, ostracism combined with the power of the state is not a good thing, but ostracism in a free society is very powerful, right? So if you are angry at your son, I think, you, I mean, listen, you get angry at clients, you don't yell at them that way, right? Oh, yeah. That's correct, yeah. You get angry at your wife, you don't yell at her that way, right? No, never. Right, so trying to bring these kinds of standards with relationships to children is kind of important. So my experience as a father as is, yeah, I, I can be angry, but I will not use a tone with my daughter when she was your, when she was your son's age, I would not to use a tone with my daughter that I would not use with anyone else. Cause that's, I won't say that's an abuse of power, but you can get away with it as a father in a way that you couldn't get away with it as a husband or a businessman. Right. Very true. Yeah. So what I, if, if I did not, like if my daughter did something I really didn't like, then I would be ruthlessly honest with her. I would say, I really don't like that. That was, that was not good. I'm not happy with you right now. And I would act, honestly act on my impulses, which is I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to spend time with you right now. Now, this didn't mean I put her in a field and allowed vultures to <laughs> feast on her or anything like that. Didn't mean I put her in any situation of danger. But the threat, uh, it's not like I'm threatening her. I'm, I'm just genuinely honest in the moment. And, you know, if your wife does something that you don't like, you might just, you know, say, you know, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to go read a book or whatever. I'm just like, let's wait till whatever, right? Or... You know, if somebody in business does something that you don't like, then you generally will restrict your behavior or interaction with, with that person. Now, of course, there's, you, you can't do that with your kids as a whole because they're dependent upon you for survival and you love them and you've got to have a permanent relationship uh, with them and all of that. So I'm obviously not suggesting you, <laughs> you flush them like a dead goldfish. But in terms of uh, I am, I'm absolutely not pleased. Now, if you understand that what kids want the most is parental attention and resources, and, and if you don't feel like if you're angry at your son, because, you know, at his age, you know, no hits, you know, he can understand that, right? So if he's acting against your very reasonable wishes and causing harm to your sister, yeah, that's going to make you angry. And it is going to diminish your desire to interact with your son. Now, having that simple 
clear, honest response is ridiculously difficult, <laughs> right? Because for you, it's like, well, I'm going to try these strategies. I'm going to yell at him to dissuade him. I'm going to put him in his crib. I'm, these are all strategies, and I don't think that they arise from direct and clear emotional honesty. Yeah, my initial reaction before I started trying to look into it more was, okay, we put him in his crib. It's time out. So, I, so it sounds like that aspect of the of the ori original, I guess we'll say, impulse was right, but I just needed to be, or we just need to be more um, descriptive. Uh, we just need to talk to him more and just be honest with him. Yeah, so I mean, and so I'm not a huge fan of timeouts. Uh, I, I know that they can work as, as far as retraining people. And so, uh, you know, I'm not, you know, it's not like that's just some terrible thing. It's not like you're initiating the use of force or anything like that. So, you know, the whole timeout process is it has to be sort of regimented uh, and it's, you know, one minute per age, a year of age, if I remember rightly. And it has to be followed by an apology uh, and all of that, right? And, and that, you know, that can certainly behavior modify, for sure. It is still an exercise of power, though, because you're picking him up and you're placing him somewhere uh, and so on, right? So, it is, yes. I yeah, I didn't do anything like that. Um, again, I have a daughter, you have a son, we're different families. So I'm not, there's not a one size fits all thing other than, you know, don't initiate force. But for me, it was, I'm, I'm not happy with you right now. And she reaches me like, no, I am not, I'm not happy with you right now. Now, listen, I would say that to a friend. I would say that to my wife if there was any conceivable situation in which she would displease me, which is because this is being recorded. Impossible. No, I'm kidding, right? But I would say, look, I'm not, I'm not pleased with you right now. I mean, you've heard me with, with listeners, like if, if I feel like I'm being run around or, or not getting honest answers or, or whatever, being manipulated, I'll be pretty clear. But I'm not using your scary voice, right? <laughs> yeah, and I hated to use my scary voice. So I just... Just use my regular tone and just be no, just, honest. No, with no, me. no. See, so you're thinking about a regular tone like you're reading a script. Oh. Just be oh, honest. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm okay. really, uh, I'm mad at you right now. I'm, I'm not happy with you right now. I don't, we've talked about the hitting. You're still hitting. I don't like it. I, I don't want it. And it's not right for your sister. And I'm not okay. yeah. happy with you right now. And then see what he does. Now, maybe he'll pull the pride thing and won't admit fault. It's like, okay, I'm not happy with you right now. And I'm going to continue to be unhappy every time you hit your sister. Do you see me hitting anyone? Do you see your sister hitting anyone? Do you see your mom hitting anyone? No. You're the only one who's hitting. That's not right. And I'm not pleased. And then he comes to say, Daddy, can we play? He says, I'm not happy with you. I don't feel like playing because you're hitting your sister. I'm not happy enough to play. I'm not feeling positive enough to play. And again, like adjust it for your son's language comprehension and all of that. But to me, that's kind of honest. And if it's like, I've got to change his behavior, what strategies do I need to deploy to change his behavior? You're being sucked into his amoral universe of cause and effect, right? The commitment That's that you true. need to make is just to be ruthlessly honest with him. Now, he's, if you, you could, now, I assume that if you've done something that he doesn't like and, and you're in the wrong, that you've apologized to him, right? Because that's important to model that apology stuff, right? So you oh, can yeah. say, look, when I've done something wrong, I've apologized to you. You hit your sister. You know that's wrong. So what do you need to do to make things better? 
and he'll get it at some point. He knows he needs to say sorry, right? Yeah. And the if, if the so- sorry, hang on a sec. So if the sorry is genuine, yeah. right? If you have to trust your instincts with this, right? If the sorry is genuine, you'll know because you'll feel better. If the sorry is manipulative, like sorry, you know, just so he can get to play, it's like I don't believe you. Sorry, like I'm I'm sorry that I don't believe you, but I don't. I think you're just saying that, right? So just be very honest. If he's hit your daughter. You, you don't like him in that moment, right? Or you, do, you don't like that behavior, obviously, right? And if he says, Daddy, come play, and you're mad at him, I mean, you don't have to yell at him like, like uh, he's some errant dog, but just be honest. I don't, like, that's, that's a really tough thing is to just, to trust that honesty is going to work is like the weirdest thing in the world. It's like, well, I'm not going to have any productive strategy. I'm just going to, have this magic spell called honesty. It's, it, it's so it's so against what we believe, right? Because, you know, if, if you want to dig a ditch, you don't just sit there and say, well, I'm going to be really honest about my desire to dig a ditch. And suddenly the ditch is going to be magically dug. <laughs> you know, like honesty doesn't move any shovels in the world, right? But when it comes to parenting, yeah. when it comes to personal relationships, honesty is this crazy powerful magic spell. It's crazy powerful magic spell. Because it is so authentic, it connects to people at such a deep level that it is irresistible in your relationships. So as soon as you try to do something in a relationship to achieve an effect, you've lost. And it doesn't work. You may get temporary compliance, but you won't get any genuine connection that changes. That's true. And and the hardest thing that really has been happening is he's just been so young and that that's been the big part of the battle because i've you know i've listened to a lot of stuff that you you've talked about i mean probably hundreds of hours and so i had just been well i had the false thought in my mind of i just have to wait till he's verbal then i can work on this e- even more but it's just hard to understand that there it is possible at this age, even when he's only semi-verbal. And, and before that, you know, when he wasn't verbal, it, it was hard to trust in the fact that he would understand. Well, you see, but you're, again, you're, you're, I'm sorry to be so annoying. I really am. It's really, I, I apologize. But you're saying, I can't be honest until he understands, which is putting conditions on your honesty. My argument is yeah. he will understand when you are honest doesn't matter how old he is now listen when he's a little toddler right i mean to take a silly example right he's a little toddler like he's i don't know he's he's a baby right three months old you're changing his diaper he pees in your face right that's funny right he's gonna be a fireman (laughs) that whole patrick swayze line from city of god right so if uh if you're changing your kid's diaper and he pees in your face it's not pleasant but it's not like oh my God, I can't believe he did that to me. He's so mean, right? Do you follow? That's right, yeah. Right. Yeah, I'm here. Okay, so at some point though, like if, I'm not saying he ever would, right? But if your son or some kid um, walks up to your daughter, unzips his fly and pees on her, that's an act of crazy aggression, right? So your emotional instincts, your emotions will be a valid guide as to when he's responsible for what he does. In other words, if you're, you know, if if your kid pees in your face, your baby pees in your face by accident, it's annoying or whatever, but it's kind of funny down there. And certainly later, it's kind of funny, right? Now, if 
When you start to get angry at your son, that's when you are becoming aware that he is morally responsible, or at least consequence responsible, if that makes sense. So you, this is why self-trust, right? This is why, and I say this, it's not like everyone who gets angry at a child is just, but you've listened to the show, you've done self-work, you've been therapy, like you've, you've got a pretty good handle on your emotions, right? So to, yeah, be, to be honest and not aim for effect, right? Not aim for an effect. Because the moment you aim for an effect, you've entered into this amoral universe of whatever you can get away with, right? And you need him to internalize not hitting. So if you say, okay, well, listen, if you hit, we're going to put you in a timeout. It's like, okay, so I get negative consequences for hitting. So the best thing for me to do is to make sure I don't get caught hitting. Or what will happen is he will switch from hitting your daughter to saying mean things to her out of earshot. Because if he can get away without the timeout, then he'll just, like, it doesn't deal with the, the, um, the coldness. It doesn't deal with the hostility. It doesn't deal with the aggression. It just says, okay, well, I can't, uh, I can't hit her because that's, you know, this going to cause a problem, right? So, so I, there's a timeout or whatever, negative consequences. So, okay, I, I'm, I, I'm still aggressive. I just don't want those consequences. So I will now, my aggression will play out in ways which is harder to trace, you know, it's, like, it's like censoring a, a, an argument you find despicable. It doesn't make the argument go away. It just drives it underground where it can't be tracked and opposed anymore, right? Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. Okay, so let's, let's take this for a run. I am your son. <laughs> Luke, I am your son. I am your son, and I've just hit your daughter. What is the totally honest emotional response to this little lad i don't like it when you hit sissy it hurts so much it hurts her so much and i can see her being so sad and it makes me sad too is there any way can you please not do that can we can we find something else to do and we can we can play something else but just i really don't like it when you hurt her Okay, that's good. That's good. You got the sadness, but I think you skipped out on the anger. And also, you were suggesting something else to do. In other words, you get more activities if you hit your sister. You oh, get parental that's attention right, yeah. and more activities. That's true. Dang. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, that's fine. Listen, if you got it right, then yeah. you're no point having the call, right? <laughs> no point at all. Okay, let's try it again. Uh, I'm, I'm your son, and I've just smacked your daughter on the head. Hey, I don't like it when you hit her. Stop that. You need to you need to learn to play nicely with her, or else you can't play. Okay, can you, yes, please, please play nicely with her. Okay, will you be nice to Sissy? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a lot of consequentialism. Dig deep into your feelings, your feelings. Just just be honest about your feelings alone, because this is all like, can you learn to play nice? And here's the consequences, and it makes me upset, and I'm like. If you dig deep, the, the, the deeper you get into your feelings, the more you will connect with your son. Because if, if you're asking him to empathize with his sister, you have to first empathize with yourself. And then the magic transmission occurs. I know I'm asking for a lot of faith here, but... Um, okay, so let's try yeah, again. I, and, yeah. you know, smack. I just hit your daughter. Hey, don't hit her. I, uh, I don't like that. I don't like it when you're hitting her. 
That's not bad. It was a little whiny. And you'll you'll get yeah. this when you hear it back. So yeah, the whininess absolutely. comes from you feel, you feel that if you're honest with your son, you've oh. lost power, which is why you became whiny. In other words, your son is now in charge. You're helpless because you can't inflict consequences. He's just, yeah, he's grabbing my lips as we speak, actually. And he was he was just twisting it with his nails. And now he's crying and in my shoulder trying oh, to Oh, I'm hug sorry. Me. I didn't realize your son was in the room. Let's not do this role play with him in the room because he's going to think you're chastising okay. him. Yeah, that's that's been hard. Part. Okay. okay, so, let so me see. I, I'll, obviously I'll I can't speak for you, and I would so, I would never dare to presume to, but another, because yeah, but because your son's in the room, let me sort of say the way that I would respond. And now, please understand, I'm not saying you have to respond like me. Obviously, right? Because yeah. honesty is different for each person. So I'm not trying to give you a script of what to do. But I've to got me, a question, though. Mm-hmm. To me, it would be okay. Let's see something. I just want to make sure I get sort of into the right right frame of mind and and make it again as authentic as as humanly possible. Okay, so a kid hits, uh, uh, someone kid hits my daughter, and I'd be like, no, 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 absolutely not, absolutely not, no, no, there's no hitting here, there's no hitting here, I will not accept that, no hitting here at all, I don't hit you, mom doesn't hit you, we don't hit each other, there is no hitting, that is wrong, that is nasty, that is unpleasant, that is difficult, and I am very unhappy at the moment, and I'm actually quite angry, because we've talked about this before, no hitting, now, I don't want to play with you at the moment. I'm upset with you. I'm angry with you. I'm frustrated. So whatever you want to do, you can do it. I'm going to take your sister and I'm going to comfort her. And maybe I'll spend a little bit of time with her because it's my job. It's my job to keep her safe. And right now I'm not able to keep her safe because you keep hitting her. It's my job to keep her safe. I am not going to back down from that job. You do not get to hit your sister. I'm very upset with you. I'm going to keep her safe. You're going to have to find something to do by yourself because I don't feel like playing with you right now at all. Now, again, I'm, I'm not trying to tell you what to say. Obviously, it's different for each individual. Does that, I wasn't threatening him. I was being pretty honest about my own emotional experience, and I was making a very strong commitment to keep his sister safe no matter what. And I was honest about not wanting to spend time with him at the moment and the need to comfort his sister. Um, I, I don't know. Does that come across to you? I don't know how that came across to you, but tell me what you think. Well, it came across to me as very honest. It's such a, it's a, such a hard way of thinking because we've talked about this before. I abstract away my feelings so intensely that it, it's been really hard to connect with it. Even, I, even with I, I appreciate therapy. that and I sympathize with that enormously. And so the stuff that I'm talking about here is like super PhD parenting. It's a super PhD life, yeah. right? Which is just yeah. how are you directly honest with with people and in particular children right now i think i i do believe that that genuine commitment and connection to yourself and your upset and your anger and your frustration i think that is going to stop i think that will stop his behavior now it may take a little while it's going to take some consistent stuff but i think that kind of honesty it is it's powerful man it's powerful magic and again i wish there was a better way to put it because i don't believe in magic but it is a way of just being so directly honest that people's behavior has to change, and it's not because of consequences. Yeah. Um, I've been, I just started crying. and Yeah, tell me, tell me, what, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? Just having that honest, genuine expression to hear that, it just seems so hard to do, like so... Outside my, uh, and I'm already abstracting in a way the feeling, but no, no, keep going, keep going. You're you're there. 
I just want to do that. I want to be able to do that with him because to me, it seems like it would just unlock everything else. Everything else in my life to just be genuine and honest with everything. Like, I've had to deny... Yeah, I've had to deny um, my passions. Like, I've been so fogged in the brain with what I want to do with a career because everything that I've experienced with, with my parents telling me, you know, all the jobs that they look for to help, to help me out. The job that I have now is not the right fit, but it's, it was divine intervention that got me this job, but I need divine intervention to get me out of it, to get me into what I should be doing. Right. Because right now, I've learned to survive with sales, just like, like, you know, using, it, like I said, with my son, using tactics. I've been using tactics to work with my life, just with my situation. To a degree, I was blown around like the wind, and I just wanted to take that control. I want that control. I want to do the thing that I want. I want to do the thing that I like, but it seems like my my brain fogs up of you don't know what it's going to be, and you don't even know if there's any market for that right? as a defense. I just, I do, I want to be honest with, with everything. I've been, I mean, my wife and I, we, when we're having a, a conversation, we're up, upset with the well, I can't remember the exact situation, but basically we, we wrote out that we would, that I would promise to be honest with her about my feelings. I think it was when I didn't want to go somewhere, but I would just go somewhere with her anyway. And it's a lot of that. A lot of what I've been living is denying that true honesty because it was so dangerous, I guess you could say. Oh, oh, it is. You, you, listen, you're yeah. not you're not cowardly about this. It is it no. is very dangerous to be honest in the world. We've known this for mm-hmm. since Socrates and before, right? It mm-hmm. it is dangerous. Um, uh, certainly within the family, it's something that you have to champion, right? But but certainly out yeah. there in the world, and and also when you were a kid, right? If you didn't want your mom to go, and you said, "Mom, mom, please don't go. Mom, please don't go." You wanted to be honest. You just mm-hmm. got ignored anyway, and and mom just left, yeah. right? So it's painful, and this is what we're all avoiding with honesty: is this early childhood stuff. Yeah. And like we had with our earlier conversation, I'll just kind of bring back to that. So since we had our conversation, I got married to my wife and was just kind of continuing on my path. Part of that was um, a coping strategy in terms of, oh, hey, yeah, I'm still talking. Um, in terms of, well, furry pornography. So that was that was a thing. And so with that, I mean, it was mild use at best, but... Like I said, with divine intervention with my job, my boss basically said he wasn't even thinking of me. He was my ward employment specialist. And so with that, he helped me a couple of weeks before and was like, okay, you know, this is how you work out your resume. And he said he was sitting there. He got a vision of me sitting to his left in, in the workplace. He had already had a bunch of other people lined up much better qualified than me. But he brought me in, interviewed me and said, okay, you got the job. Two months later, we're on our first work trip driving around and he's telling me about his life saying 
um, this is 30 years ago. He's just like, um, you know, he was kind of a gangbanger. And so he would shoot at people. Fortunately, he never killed anyone, but he'd shoot at people, get ladies pregnant, things like that. And he said that he had somebody who, who changed, helped him change his life in that regard. And so right then and there, it was like pure heart to heart to such a degree that I felt it. And I went and I talked to my bishop and I went to the, it's called the Addiction Recovery Program. And with that, went there for about eight months and got the the major part of the problem resolved. But for me, I needed to understand why. Why am I, you know, what in the world is the, is the furry interest? Why am I interested in this sort of thing? And so just been digging and digging and um, been going to talk therapy using internal family systems uh, to a degree. And with that, we're we're trying something experimental. So I do have a, it's like a fursuit head. So I have that because because with that on, I um, I'm more authentically me. And so what I'm trying to do is like like Alan Watts said in his dreams talk, basically is you you normalize the feelings that you have while wearing well for me is wearing that head to the point where it's normalized within you and then you can start taking the head away and just being the authentic you and so the, so that's what i'm well that's what i'm trying to accomplish as well and so that's the same thing with my emotions i'm trying to be completely honest and completely authentic but it's been so deeply ingrained and like you said it's been so deeply ingrained to not be that it's hard and i know i believe that if i can resolve this within myself it's going to improve the relationship that i have with my family with my wife with my son with my with my daughter and it'll go on and i'll be able to <laughs> be me and i can use that to help other people too right i mean this is the basic equation of life <laughs> that honesty is a superpower. And as we know, every superpower brings out what? The supervillains, right? So a way uh, to, to be dishonest is to hide from the scanning destructiveness of the eye of Sauron of the world that looks for people who are actually honest and then tries to destroy them. So there's risk. We're not, we're not, we're not idiots for withholding truth uh, at times because uh, it, is, uh, it is a dangerous thing in this world. Now, with regards to your family, right? This is, this is really, really important, though. To be honest without aiming for a consequence is really hard. Now, I don't think it's hard for us naturally, but the way that we're raised and this, that, and the other, right? It's just how it, how it kind of plays out. But to be honest without trying to control somebody else's behavior, oof, it's tough, right? It's really, really tough, but it's so powerful. It's so, I mean, everything, it's just why I can't really consume that much mainstream media, right? Because also, I mean, they don't write anything without searching for an effect, right? It's, it's what uh, Diana West said about, she used to say this on Twitter, that uh, it's ne the issue is never the issue. The issue, the issue is always the revolution, right, for, for the communists and so on, right? Everything that they say, everything that they do, everything that they talk about, it's all to produce a particular effect, to, to gain power, to demoralize people. Like, it's never just an honest thing. And I don't, I mean, the lesson that I learned from that is just be honest 
without trying to control. Because as soon as you try to control, as soon as you're aiming for a consequence, then you lose the connection, right? What is it you want to teach your son? You want to teach your son emotional connection because once he's emotionally connected with his sister, he won't want to hit her anymore. And if you try to punish him, then you're denying your emotional connection to him, which is what you need to model so that he won't hit his sister. And this, to be honest, without trying to pull any levers, without trying to change behavior, without trying to control people, to just be honest is very hard, but it's so powerful that it, it is as close to, to magic as, as I can conceive of. And this is why you know this, right? This is why the Bible says, thou shalt not bear false witness. One of the fundamental, like if you're testifying at a trial, God forbid, right? If you're testifying at a trial and your goal is to get someone convicted, that's going to affect your honesty. You can't bear false witness. If your goal is to get someone exonerated, then you're not going to be honest, right? So thou shalt not bear false witness to me translates into do not be honest or do not deploy your honesty as a method of controlling others. Do not try to gain some effect out of being honest. Just, I mean, what did Jesus, Jesus, of course, came and said, basically, morality is universal. It shouldn't be thou shalt not kill Jews, it should be thou shalt not kill. Morality is universal, and morality is a choice. No one's going to kill you if you decide not to become a Christian. There's no penalty of death for apostasy. Morality is universal. That's a true statement. And he knew that there were going to be significant negative consequences to saying morality is universal. I mean, in my own tiny way, I've experienced those as well. But it is. Morality is universal. Sorry, it just is. And the whole foundation of Christianity is the proposition that morality is universal. And that statement has been said, despite the fact that, of course, Christians have been persecuted and remain the most persecuted religious group in the world today. So if it was for consequences, you would never say morality is universal because you get much more praise and pomp and power, prestige and money for saying there's no such thing as morality, morality is subjective, uh, everything is for the revolution and we don't have any scruples and will to power and Nietzsche and blah, blah, blah. But to, to be honest without trying to control anyone, this is why I, I keep saying to everyone and have from the very beginning of the show when I made a vow, I will never, ever use honesty to control people. Never, ever, ever. And you cannot find an instance in the entire history of my show where I've used honesty to control people. I've been tempted and I've probably stepped into the muck once or twice, but that's my general commitment. My major commitment is I will not... Like, so when I was being honest with the little role play about your son hitting, I, I repeatedly said, I'm not trying to tell you what to say. This is my experience. It's going to be different for you. I'm not trying to give you a script. I'm not trying to, okay, just, just, I don't want you playing this as your ringtone every time, <laughs> my little speech there. I don't want you playing that as your ringtone every time your son hits someone because that's not giving him connection to you, right? He doesn't need connection with me. He needs connection with you. And so just this general principle, to be honest without trying to control anyone, without saying my honesty has to achieve X, Y, or Z effect. My honesty has to stop my son from hitting my daughter. My honesty has to get my wife to change. My honesty has to get my friend to confess. My honesty has to get blah, blah, blah. The moment you do that, you can't be honest. Honesty is the commitment to the word itself. Honesty is the commitment to vulnerability and the power that comes from vulnerability in the naked expression of your emotional state and your intellectual state. And to be honest 
without trying to change anyone or anything, it's a strange power. It's almost, I mean, it's the closest thing to a miracle or to magic, as I said before, that I have seen or experienced. It is amazing. And for many people, it's incredibly anxiety-producing. And I think that's why you got emotional earlier, because you're like, okay, what have I been taught my whole life? How have I been free to be honest? Have I been free to express myself? Have I actually had free speech? It's come down to a very fundamental thing. Do I actually have a First Amendment in my life? Do I actually have freedom of speech in my relationships? Can I just be honest without trying to manipulate or control or change? Or right? It's, it's, it's like the guy. He's trying to just sleep with a girl and just say whatever, right? He's not being honest because he's got a goal. He's just trying to get her to take her panties off, right? And it's... Uh, or, you know, some guy who's recording his estranged wife during some divorce proceeding and, and he's, he's not being honest in the conversation. He's trying to get her to do something so it looks bad in court or whatever crap goes on with the ubiquitous 1984-style recording devices everyone has these days, right? But can you just be honest? And it's, it's a great deal of sorrow that we experience when we look back upon our lives and say, God damn, the way that my family is structured, the way that school was structured, the way that society is structured, the way that everything is structured, most people don't taste one goddamn honest word between birth and death. They don't know what it is to say something honest, true, without manipulation, without a desire for effect, simply to state the facts of their own thoughts, emotions, and existence. They don't know what it is, and they will never know what it is. And you just got a sip of that, and you're like, holy crap. It moves you, right? Completely. Very much so. The the one time, or rather... One of the times that I remember being completely honest um, during that trip, yeah, during that trip, he, uh, my boss, I, for, I, my my boss recommended that I write down each and every single thing, like anything that I could remember that was considered, you know, a sin in that regard. So, for example, you know, I was on a plumbing job once where. I was with somebody in the ward, like I said, the geographical congregation, um, and he was a plumber, and I'd worked worked with him, and we went out on a job site, and they had a copy of Diablo two at the at the job site. It was somebody's house. We we're installing a water water heater, and I I took it, you know, and and had it played it for a couple hours. Felt bad and returned it, but I never told anyone, and and the not telling anyone, I didn't realize up until. I wrote it down and wrote all the other sins basically alongside it and was able to tell my, my bishop about that. I didn't realize that I had had that sort of heavy feeling on me for, for not being honest and telling somebody about well, it. So, and, and particularly for a game that sucks. <laughs> I'm sorry, Diablo fans. It blows. It blows chunks. You just wander around shooting at things. It's like mindless. It's like ridiculous. And I'm sorry. I've, I've tried it a couple of times. Diablo 3, I think, was the last one I tried. It blows. Mm-hmm. It blows serious chunks. So I'm sorry that you sold your soul for such a crappy game. No, I'm just kidding, right? But yeah, you, you got. I remember when I was a kid, yeah. a teenager, a friend of mine. No, I was a teenager? Maybe, yeah, it was, it was in my late teens. And I got a job uh, uh, chipping up someone's basement. Uh, you know, they, 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 um, they have this, uh, sometimes this chipboard or these like wooden slats in basements. And my job was to, to chip that up. And I was in there and they would leave for the day and... Uh, 
they had an Amiga and I booted it up and I played around with it. I wasn't supposed to. I didn't take anything. But yeah, I remember booting up this Amiga and playing around with it because I was always curious about Amiga and I love computers. And uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was something I did. And, you know, it was wrong because it was not my property and it wasn't something I was supposed to be doing. But um, yeah, it happens. Anyway, so yeah, we, we've all had these little kind of hiccups and all that. But sorry, go ahead. Yeah, just just being honest with the bishop um, and having written them all the all those things out felt very very liberating, and I think we're just carrying that principle forward into every other aspect of my life. Like you said, is is a superpower, and I want to I want to get that superpower. And well, you already have yeah. it. Like you you already have it within you. Yes. Right. You, you, all, all you have to do is take the uh, circuit breakers off, take the dampers off, and, and, and be willing to experience the emotions that arise when we finally get the desert drink of honesty in our lives, right? It's, it's a very emotional experience. It's a destabilizing experience. I mean, I remember when I was first going through this process when I was in therapy. Oh, my gosh. I was at... Oh, man, I just, just popped in my head because of regards, I was just starting to be really honest with people in my life. And what happened was I was working away when I was running this uh, software department, uh, the company I co-founded. I was working away on a very difficult technical problem. And I used to listen to music. And this is when, uh, this is an old album by now, but the Bare Naked Ladies' first album called Gordon, which is very good. I've actually, I saw them live when I was in New York for business many years ago. Pretty good band live. But this, this first album they had uh, called Gordon is a, is a great album. It's a great album. And, you know, some of the songs are comedy songs, and some of the songs are very, very serious. And one of the songs that is, to me, very serious is, is called Good Boy. Uh, when I was young. Anyway, it's a, it's a really good song. You should go, go listen to it. And the singer is, is really, really good. And it's, it's quite a passionate song about the consequences of not being honest. I couldn't tell you I was wrong. So basically, I lay awake all night and, and, you know, because I couldn't be honest, because I couldn't admit that I was wrong. I, I just couldn't sleep, and these are the negative consequences, but I can't be honest in my life. It's a really, really good song. Uh, it's called Goodbye, Bare Naked Ladies. You look it up. And I, anyway, so I was listening to this song, and, you know, this got Enid on it and, and uh, Hello City and, and a bunch of other stuff. And it's kind of cool, kind of jazzy. It's a clever band. Anyway, so I'm working away on a technical problem, and I've had you know, some intense therapy that week. I used, I did, like, three hours of therapy a week it was quite a lot and I got the headphones on and the song comes on and it's also a bit about exams and you know everybody who's been in university uh, maybe even high school you have this exam anxiety afterwards and the, the song comes on and it's like being it, like the emotions came up in me it was like being kicked in the chest by a horse and I had to get up and I had to kind of half race to the bathroom. I had to sit in the stall and weep, like just racking sobs. You know, when you actually start to become honest, it, it uncorks a lot of pain, a lot of humiliation, a lot of fear, a lot of subjugation. Because to be honest is to be strong, is to be in a position of, of, of power, not power over others, but the power of being unafraid of negative judgment. But to be afraid of negative consequences is... A reasonable thing, right? Otherwise, you you just do crazy, foolhardy things and get injured and die. But to be crazy scared or to be scared of a negative judgment, that's a different matter, right? And the reason we aren't honest is we fear negative judgment. Now, unfortunately, society's moving to the place like they're now gathering together lists of Trump supporters and all that, and they're going to try and 
ostracize them and destroy them. And I mean, it's really getting total, I mean, total lefty fascist stuff. It's kind of typical at this phase. So I'm not talking about politics I mean, in your personal life, right? To, to be honest without trying to control people is a position of being unafraid. And when you remove a fear that you've had or you confront and, and act against a fear you've had your whole life, it's going to uncork a lot of emotions. And that's why people avoid the truth, is they're avoiding the truth of their own subjugation and how humiliated they felt in being attacked for being honest in their lives and how little truth we can speak between birth and the grave. So to be asked, uh, be this honest with your son, to be this direct and, and uh, not try and control his behavior, but just simply state the truth of your experience. <sighs> yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that it's going to be a very emotional thing, and he may see you burst into tears, and that's fine. That's fine. Your parental tears are not going to drown him. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's, that's my suggestion. I think if you really connect with yourself, if you really connect with your son, that will teach him the empathy that will have him refrain from hitting his sister. Thank you, Steph. You're very welcome. Will you keep me posted about how it goes? Absolutely. Will you give your kids a hug and a kiss for me? Uh, I really enjoyed, I, I love this phase. So for people who don't know, if you don't have little kids around, there's this phase where they make sounds all the time. Why? Because they're learning how to speak. And, you know, they need to. And you want them to make those sounds all the time. Uh, and it's really, it's a delightful phase. And I, I, uh, I really, I miss that. I miss that phase. You know, hopefully I can uh, have grandkids at some point uh, and, uh, and go through it again. But uh, it's, it's a beautiful phase. So please thank your wife for her participation in what for her must have been a rather sur surreal experience. Um, please, uh, you know, uh, thank your kids for their patience with the conversation. And I really, really thank you for bringing this topic up. It is, uh, as always, an amazingly powerful thing to do. And uh, I, uh, I appreciate it. Sure thanks, Steph. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks, everyone, so much. Come on, you know there's nothing else like it in the web. Nothing else like these conversations are occurring anywhere. That's why no one's stepping in to take my place on social media. So you know how unique it is. You know how valuable it is. Please, please help me out. Freedomain.com forward slash donate. Take care, everyone. Love you much. <laughs>